by the time a couple realises they're actually in strife and we need to get some help, that's been going on for actually years. They've had, they've had some arguments and the arguments have increased in intensity and hostility and they're not recovering from the arguments. And after four or five years, it's got too much and now we need to see a counsellor. Welcome to an episode of This Catholic Life. Conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. Today's show, we're following up on Marriage Matters, a previous episode where we talked to Francine Parola about uh, marriage and the, the what Catholic marriage means and all the different struggles in, in society and marriage. Um, and she promised to come back, and I'm very grateful that she has. So we're going to have another conversation about family life in the world where ordinary Catholics can actually contribute to the ongoing health of marriages and life. So I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined, as I said, by Francine Parola. Well, good morning, Peter. Thank you for coming back. Before we get started, just a reminder, if you like the show, you should subscribe on your favourite podcast device or on our website, thiscatholiclife.com.au, and that way you won't miss an episode. You can find all this in the show notes. Um, subscribe and all the different podcast devices you can use at our website, thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can also find, by the way, little show notes, handy little references, any links that we talk about today will go in the show notes so you can find the stuff there. So let's get into today's topic. We talked last time we met about um, marriage and the kind of the macro things that are going on and the different marriage programs, uh, the different sort of marriage counselling that helps, the, the making a decision you know, discerning marriage, that kind of thing. But today we wanted to talk more about the practical things that ordinary people can do. Let's start with being aware of a, of other people's stuff. Like there's yeah. a kind of an idea of privacy, isn't there? There, There is. It's, it's really interesting. On the wedding day, we want the whole world <laughs> to know about it. <laughs> Uh, but then, particularly if we're having difficulties, it's it's we retract and we don't want anybody involved. Mm. And, and um, what do you think causes that? Look, I I think we've got a a cultural challenge that we need to to really question, just generally, but also in the church. And I think we need to be more open about our struggles. So right. the kinds of stories that you tell and that we tell through our programs around just how we face difficulties in our marriage. Mm. I think is really helpful because one of the things that does is it, is it normalizes challenges and difficulties for people right. so that they don't feel so alone. And we're always struck by when we run our marriage seminars and so on, how many people will say to us, I, my goodness, I thought you were speaking straight into our marriage experience. It was like you'd been in our lounge room listening to our argument. And it's like because the, we're actually all pretty similar in that regard. Yeah. We all have differences of opinion. We've got differences in our, you know, sexual differences in the way that we relate and what's important to us yep. and so on. So I think just being prepared to be open and honest with each other around, I'm finding this really hard. Yeah. In there, a way that doesn't disrespect our spouse or... Or marriage itself. Right. Because I remember as a, as a kid growing up, I went to a public school and pretty much every reference to marriage was, it's the end of life. Like yes, you, right. you the have ball and fun, you live and your life and then you get married as the kind of, well, it's all over now. We might as well yeah. just give it up. You know, the ball and chain, as you said, yeah. or uh, they used to tell jokes, you know, his son goes to his father and says, is a man wiser after he's married? And he says, yes, son, but it's too late then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, a kind of, yeah. there's a kind of um, dead, like the, the idea that marriage that is giving up life. Mm -hmm. And even some of my friends, well, I was in a, uh, not sorry, a Lutheran seminary, and some of my friends would act this way. You know, like when mm -hmm. when um, I got married, some of them would show up at the flat and and talk to my wife and say, "Can Peter come out and play?" Oh, <laughs> this dear. kind of yeah. negative thing that she was the drag on my my life and my fun, and it, it's not a healthy view of marriage. And this is quite often a dead, and that they used to tell a lot of jokes in the public school about that your love life even ends with marriage. So right. if you're going to have fun with your love life, you have it before you're married. Yeah. And the whole idea of a buck's night sort of builds that in. And the, yeah, and then right. that, that life after marriage is kind of, you know, you've just settled. Yes. And, and you, you're not, you're just kind of just existing from then on. Yeah. That's a dangerous end of it. And we don't want our honesty to sound as if it's affirming that end of things. That's right. But on the other end, you don't want to make it so idealistic that it's unrealistic. That's right. So it's part of, I guess, approaching it as a great adventure. Yeah. And like... 
all adventures. And there's it's going the to be there's going to be difficulties. There's going to be challenges. It's going to be taxing. You know, you've got to exert yourself to get to the top of that mountain or run mm. that marathon. But the rewards are really worth it. And I think if we can bring that kind of balance and make sure that we're talking about the struggle, but also talking about the triumphs and how yeah. we resolve them, so that there's always words, that positive end to the story. That there's actually a it's worth it. Yes. I guess that's the key for me, that it's worth it. Yes. So that there's no, it's difficult, but it's worth it. It's the most difficult thing you'll do and the most rewarding thing you'll do. Yes. Um, I'm going to throw a left field thing at you here. I once saw some stats of divorces and success, happiness in marriage amongst people who uh, come from cultures where their marriages are arranged. Right. And that the couples themselves, I actually, the reason I did this is I was in shared a, a block of flats with some other people who were in the same faith and one of the couples there had an arranged marriage and mm-hmm. they met on their wedding day. Wow. And they had the most beautiful marriage and I was saying, hang on, all my Western hackles are coming mm-hmm. up at this point going, what? No, that's not right. You should be miserable and <laughs> not compatible in some way as if our method of selecting spouses has some somehow infallible. It's completely not, by the yes, way. Yes, So frivolous and our reasons for choosing spouses are often quite bad. However, what was interesting about their culture is that there was so much formal structure in it that in the best scenarios, which theirs was a fairly good example of, her family actually had to vet him. Yes. And his family had to vet her. She went and lived with his family for a month and he lived with her family, her brothers, for a month. And they were rigorous in checking him out, his character and, and his admittedly, his financial credentials, his personal nature, was he going to treat our sister the right way and all this, a really rigorous thing. And they had a vested interest because their families were going to intertwine if Mm -hmm. this happened and they they were very much involved in it. Now, there's all kinds, we've we've all seen the nasty stories in Western media about arranged marriages and how awful they can be. Mm -hmm. Yes, they can. When you have awful people making decisions for you, it's always going to be bad. But what was interesting, and this seemed to be the key, they started trying yes. when they got married, yeah. whereas Westerners seem to start trying and they, they stop trying when they get married because they think, I've achieved what yeah. the purpose of dating and mm-hmm. relationships you know, was. Mm-hmm. Now I'm married, I can relax because I've got, you know, I've hooked them and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have to everything, keep trying. Everything hangs out. Look, I think that's a really interesting observation. Just as a little um, um caveat there. We've often joked that Byron and I are an arranged marriage <laughs> because our parents, particularly our mothers, had this thing going, this just sort of, you know, the Byron and Fran were betrothed. It's, right. a, it's a longer story. I won't go into it. But before we even started dating, there was this, oh yes, one day, you know, when they get married. So right. there was this culture between our two families, right. this collusion. Um, but anyway, for another time, maybe. <laughs> Look, it's not a bad thing. If I mean, again, in a perfect scenario where your parents uh, actually love you, they want the best for you. And sometimes they can see things that you can't see. Now, exactly. unfortunately, in Australia, I would suspect that most of us aren't, we just simply don't have a culture or an awareness of how we could be a, a healthy contributor to someone else's decisions. No. So no. even when I want the best for my friend, I actually have no model, no no structure. There's no kind of way of being involved in their decision, which is helpful and constructive right. and respects their free will. Yes, yes, yes. You've got to get that balance between yeah. the, their, the individual couple has to freely come to that marriage. Mm. I think the other thing that we've noticed is that in the kind of the Western norm now, which is, you know, t- to, to meet someone, date, move in together, cohabit for five, seven, ten years sometimes mm. before they get married – one of the challenges of that is that the we know scientifically that the experience of falling in love, that science calls it limerence, um, that there's all this biochemical thing right. that goes on in the brain that induces this state of euphoria. Um, it um, you know gives us lots of energy, it drops inhibitions. All of that is happening in often this early stages of dating, often in the cohabitating state. Yep. And those sorts of things, if you would transfer those really positive, and they're beautiful, amazing experiences, we would say it's not true love at that point. It has to mature to a more yep. um, a more mature bonding and, and conscious loving that at that point it's sort of biochemically dominated. But if you're not experiencing that in the context of a sort of a permanent 
mm-hmm. arrangement, you're losing the benefit of all of those mm. those positive feelings. And particularly if you've cohabitated, and even if you've progressed out of limerence into a kind of a more stable sort of thing, but you've cohabitated for five or more years, yep. you've kind of done all that really lovely, exciting thing of setting up home and, do, you know, the shared project yep. of establishing a life together. Yep. That's now not associated with being married. That's no. associated with before you were married. And so if you go yearning for those happy tingles later in life, you you're kind of saying already you're associating it with something outside of marriage. marriage. Yeah. And so I think that's a real danger is that in our culture we want to have everything and have the good stuff now and and we yeah. don't why would we wait to get married we can just live together now. Well in fact in, in most young people's lives I'm talking outside the church and inside unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, the um Hookup culture is is almost replacing the dating and living together culture. Yes. So people are, are just casually hooking up and in a series of sort yes. of very short relationships, and then they finally get to hanging out with someone for a time, and it actually gets sadly quite removed from the idea of sexual intimacy. And then by the time they get married, sexual intimacy has this all this baggage attached to mm-hmm. it of all mm-hmm. prior relationships. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon. I d- I can't see. I would f- I have a hard time advocating for the model that your friends had with its fullness, and yeah, it probably no, needs no. to have all the fullness for it to work. No, but um, but I can see why it might work. The reason the reason I mention that is because it's so far outside of our Western experience, yeah. and it's so and it's I reacted because of the free will of the individual seemed yes. to be usurped. But even in spite of my reaction, I could see that there were elements of that decision-making which is completely lacking in our Western society. Yes. I'm glad my parents weren't involved in decision-making. They, mind you, mind you, had been divorced, sorry, separated before I got married. So right. it was kind of a, you know, yeah. a, a, a good thing that they weren't involved in the decision. But um, in some ways, even people who have good contributions, we don't have a healthy mechanism for them to give that help. So this is pretty much what we want to talk about in today's show. Yeah. How do ordinary friends, let's bring it down to friendship because that's the most common situation, but yes, how do yeah. we, when you've got a grandchild already, so you've already yes. had some experience in your children making these big decisions and um, my children are just getting to the age of potential dating. Yeah. How do we as parents, but also as friends of people, involve ourselves in a healthy way, not in a busybody yeah. way in those decisions? Um, I think one of the, the simplest things is to really just firstly to be alert for the signs. Right. So one of the things we're really aware of is that by the time a couple realises they're actually in strife right. and we need to get some help, that's been going on for actually years. They've had, they've had some arguments and the arguments have increased in intensity and hostility right. and they're not recovering from the arguments. And after four or five years, it's got too much and now right. we need to see a counsellor. Right. Well, the early signs of that are being broadcast to the people around them. Right. It might be when you're dropping the kids off to school and there's a couple of the mums right. da- or the dads at the side of the football field that are just sort of making some throwaway comments, often the negative kind of stereotypes. But that's if we're alert to it, that's an opportunity to say, pull that person aside at some stage, you know, the barbecue or whatever and say, hey, how's things going between you and your wife or you and your husband? Um, You know, I'm always happy to talk if you want to, yeah, yeah, if you want to talk some things through. The early signs is a big deal. Even in marriage, you've probably heard of Gottman's research Mm -hmm. where he he figured out he could spot a couple that would be together in five years time with about 90% accuracy. Mm -hmm. And what he figured out was that he was, he was noticing without realizing it tiny movements of their eyes when they looked at each other and it was about whether or not they had respect or contempt for each other Mm -hmm. and when he could without realizing it he was spotting just the tiniest sign of contempt yes disrespect for the partner and that meant five years they were gone yeah on an almost reliable basis and the that even the smallest expression of contempt for a spouse or or disrespect or kind of putting them down can be picked up it really quite early yes. and not not suppressed but challenged in a healthy way yes and obviously like when there is the the anti-marriage or the anti-wife anti-husband jokes yep don't participate in them try and counter them with something positive i yep. think that's part of of kind of um, building that culture without coming across as being yeah you don't want to we don't want to suppress things because suppressing yeah. language just means it goes internal and people don't feel comfortable to talk yes. to you about their troubles yeah. but when they want to talk we want them to say Hey, I really want this to work, but this is my struggle. Can you help me? Yeah, and they want you want them to be able to associate you as a positive influence. Yeah, um, because it's not helpful to go to friends and have your friends 
just agree with you and beat up on your spouse. But also it's not helpful to go to them and have them suppress you. That's right. So, <laughs> and of, often a sarcastic comment or a, or, a, or a snide comment about a spouse is is actually a disguised cry for help. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so if you've got your ears pricked, ready to kind of pick up on those. A really lovely term that I've loved that comes from Michelle Weiner-Davis, American therapist. She talks about guerrilla divorce busters. You kind of <laughs> got to go, you know, you're not out there with your placard saying or your, you know, your nameplate saying I'm a, I'm a divorce buster, but just being alert in the community. And she has this vision for just this sort of um, raising community awareness so that we're um, in the spaces where those early signs are. So, for some, I guess a couple of practical tips: what what to say, what not to say. Yeah. I think really important not to continuously be relating it to us. Sometimes it right. becomes, oh yes, I've got the same thing in my marriage, and it then just <laughs> becomes this mutual. <laughs> or even that I'm worse than you. You, you, I've got it worse. Yeah. Those kinds of things are not helpful. I think to just be really attentive to the person and the story, validating their validating the emotional experience doesn't necessarily mean validating their interpretation or judgment around the situation. Or the solution that they're proposing. That's right. Um, But sometimes just acknowledging that you've got really intense feelings, you've been deeply hurt by this situation, but then also turning it around to what's something you could do that could make the situation better. Yeah. And a lot of people um, are under this myth that, well, I can't do anything because my husband or my wife isn't cooperating, that we've got to have both of us. Now, there's some merit of truth in that, but I think it's important to remember that we can do a lot on our own. And the, the way to prove this is to say to them, is there something you could do today to make your situation worse? And everybody can think of something they could do, right? <laughs> I could go out and sleep with the secretary. I could come home drunk. I could yep. throw something. I could do whatever, right? If we can single-handedly make it worse, we can single-handedly make it better. Right. And so to kind of claim that power for ourselves, that it only takes one to tango, we yep. can change the dance. If we change our steps in the dance, that changes the nature of the dance. You yep. might not see the impact immediately, but if we're consistently doing that and making choices Um, in our relationship to improve the situation cumulatively, that will make an impact. We should should pause here and and say quite clearly that the Catholic faith does not advocate for anyone having to stay in a marriage where there's abuse. Right. So if someone's being hurt or harmed or viciously attacked, and that's not a situation we're talking about here, and Mm -hmm. there is a legitimate reason to remove yourself from immediate danger and from from constant uh, grinding down in that sort of way. And and that requires specialist help and possibly in some cases where someone's unwilling to change that kind of behaviour, it it possibly means removing yourself to to a safe place permanently. That's absolutely not – it's not a Catholic thing to say you have to stay in the marriage no matter what because constantly subjecting yourself to abuse is not – not good. It's not. It's not part of what. The well, and it's plan also is. not loving towards the other person. It is because you're facilitating um, behaviour that is actually bad for them, bad yep. for their soul, but bad for everybody, bad for the family, yeah. bad modelling. And so it's not actually a loving. Yeah. A, a loving action. Because the purpose of marriage is love. Uh, the end of marriage is the fruitfulness mm-hmm. that comes from that love. But the the purpose of marriage is love. And if that purpose is being constantly thwarted by a fatal flaw in one or more person. Um, personality, that has to be addressed before you can even talk about that marriage being fruitful. Uh, It may even be that the most loving thing to do to someone who's criminally abusive is to make them suffer the consequences of that criminal action, to put them in in whatever consequences of that action are are appropriate, which may be jail or whatever. So, And that's more loving than allowing them to continue to be an unloving person. That's right. That's right. And I think we often um, have lost sight of, I guess, the eternal perspective on our decisions. We're very much of temporal yes. kind of culture now. So we're making decisions on what is going to immediately increase my happiness or well-being yes. now or in the next hour or the next, maybe we might push it out mm. to a year. But we need to be thinking really long yeah. term and thinking. So let's sort of look at the flip side then. That, yeah. That's an extreme situation where you yes. actually can't break through without really strong professional help. And that person still has to be willing to change. It's yes. possible, but they have to be willing to. Yes. Sometimes it takes, sometimes people do come back from that situation, not as often as we'd like. Yeah. But on the other side, there's the kind of till tiff to us part, you know, Oh, yes. it's it's unbearable, this relationship, because we're arguing all the time. Well, uh, that can be dealt with. That can yes. be a situation where you, if, if two people are willing, there's actually very simple 
sometimes professional, but sometimes even just simple tools which are accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, community helps a lot, I think, to just have, um, you know, other couples who are collectively, if we're all working on our relationships together, it builds that kind of culture of this is something that's, this is what, this is how we yeah. do marriage in this I'm community. I'm not a weirdo. This that's is a right. normal, we don't ordinary just, experience. We don't go into autopilot. We don't just sit back and let the, the marriage run itself. We're yep. proactive in and intentional in how we approach it. We're looking for opportunities to improve our relationship, making time for the date nights, yep. going on retreats together, um, you know, ac- um, accessing some of the um, relationship skills and so on, yeah. I think are all just simple, practical ways that it helps if there's others in your community that's you normalising that. You have to look for ways which are actually conducive to you as a couple though. So for example, mm. uh, my wife and I have tried many things over the years, some of which have been <laughs> spectacularly unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to marriage counselling at one stage just because we wanted to get better at things. Things weren't fantastic. Yeah. We just thought, let's not wait until it falls down. Let's actually get proactive. We went to this marriage counsellor. He was very professional. And my wife and I have personalities which are very cynical. And so yeah. he, we just come – I think we oh, had a much no. more constructive conversation in the car on the way home saying, what was he going on about? <laughs> and we, we agreed to disagree with him so strongly that we actually grew closer together ourselves. And some retreats we've been on have been so fluffy and yes. lovey-dovey and, oh, you want to do this and that. And we're just not that sort of couple. Yeah. And it just didn't help. But when people actually were straight shooters and say, you've got to actually respect each other in this way and here's right. how you can work on straight communication, that's been really helpful. Now, lots of different people have different things, but you've got to be prepared to f- seek out things that work for you and be prepared to say, if someone else suggests something, okay, that might work for you, not working for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, I guess, um, to to be relentless in finding something yes. that does work for Keep you. Keep looking. So don't just say, oh, yeah, no, I don't like going on weekend retreats or I'm not interested in, in going to see a counsellor or, you know, he or she won't go to a counsellor. Mm. Find something you can do. Right. And look, there's a plethora of options out there and not just, I mean, we have a bias towards the Catholic options because it just brings a, a worldview it's and a, a, faith, to it, isn't a it? faith dimension that we think is a real asset in terms of um, – rising above the challenges but there's lots of other christian groups particularly but also secular groups right. so you can usually find something so i knew a long time ago when i was uh, looking in the marriage area geez where's now it's nearly 20 years ago now there was a program called retrovi here in new south wales mm-hmm. and they helped couples who are really struggling and i understand there's a move to get them back but you were mentioning earlier there was some other options available in new south wales for yeah. marriage people who are couples who are looking for either pre-marriage or, and more importantly, post-marriage sort of development. Yeah. So there's the, the what we would call, there's the run of the mill, just sort of marriage enrichment. Right. And there's lots of different options in the Catholic Church. Different communities and groups are running those. So there's right. things like Marriage Encounter that has okay. a so weekend what would retreat. This look, it's a weekend retreat. Okay. Weekend retreat. Um, your husband and wife go away together. It's residential and it's presented by couples and a priest um, has a you know, strong faith element, a very strong focus on developing your communication skills. Right. Um, and it's mostly between the couple. Like the it's couple all between the couple. It's very yeah. private. You're not doing sharing with other couples. Okay. It's all just be- and and most of the most of the couples retreats are very much around respecting the privacy of the couple. So yep. they're not scrutinising our own smart loving marriage seminar. Same kind of model, not right. residential though. Um, again, very respectful of the privacy of the couple. Right. Different, slightly different content. So we focus more on the, um, I guess, the sexual differences and, and how men and women approach relationships and love differently. So It's kind of controversial in today's age. It sure is. <laughs> it sure is. But, you know, we've been doing it for 30 years and and it works, it resonates, it cut, gets the cut through yeah. and it's it's really liberating for yeah. couples to be able to name this is some of the things that it's affecting the dynamic between let's, us. Let's take a brief diversion in this direction. Okay. There's a couple of... Um, What's the word for them? They're kind of like ways of receiving love, ways of being happy, uh, sort of books with the, you know, what are they called? The the indexes or um, there's another word for them. Uh, models. We call them models of love. Yeah. They're, they're, they're where, where men pretend to receive this kind of love more strongly than other kinds. So, for right. example, there's one where – it talks about recreational companionship. So, right, so that's Willard Harley's okay, work. Yeah. Yep. His needs are her needs. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And so I, I remember reading this and thinking, what? I, that's not a 
actually, that's kind of a big deal for me. And then I realized I actually really, really needed um, to hang out with people and, and get into hobbies and things like that. And that's what, what part of my makeup. And that I hadn't realized it was a big deal. And the society is quite contemptuous of this boys and toys kind of thing. And the boys still playing games and can't they grow up? There's actually a really healthy mechanism within the male psyche, which tends to lend itself towards that sort of thing. It's not uniquely male, but it tends to be more male than female. And my wife hung out with me and did these things with me until we were married. (laughs) And then she didn't didn't, uh, hang out with me anymore because she was already married. She didn't need to. But she had other things she had to do. Exactly. And you you divide and conquer. It's interesting. We find the same. Byron really likes it. If he's gardening or cleaning the pool, Mm. he just really loves me to come and hang out there and talk to him while he's doing it. He doesn't necessarily want me to help him. It's just just (laughs) hanging out with him. And I'm like, "Uh, can I get on with my stuff now? (laughs) Yes. Well, and the other thing is the communication thing. when Susie and I are a little weird in this area because I'm I'm much more talkative and I like to talk about my feelings and Susie's not to that. Right. She's this sort of Germanic Polish background where she absolutely doesn't like that and she but she does like to organise things mm-hmm. and so the, our communication is a trade off. She's not allowed to talk to me about money or organisation after nine o'clock at night because I can't sleep. <laughs> and I'm not allowed to talk to her about philosophy or theology after nine o'clock at night. <laughs> so it's just like uh, nine o'clock at night becomes this sort of truce zone where we don't introduce anything difficult. Um, but in in these situations, it's interesting that even though they're generalisations and we don't want to make them into sort mm-hmm. of rock hard stereotypes of male and female, there is actually a good healthy respect for the different ways in which our spouse is loved. I'd spent the first 10 years of our marriage trying to make Susie happy. Um, Susie's my wife, just to be clear, <laughs> in case you think <laughs> Susie was my secretary or something. No, Susan's my wife and I spent the first 10 years of my wife trying to make her happy by my mechanisms, Yes, the ways yes. that I received happiness. And she didn't want to be in clubs or be involved in, you know, yep. activities. She didn't, she didn't, her happy day is home on the couch with a book. That's yep. her happy day. And for me, that's, I mean, now it's becoming more happy as I get older, but it certainly wasn't where I was yeah. going. And I thought, oh, I failed her. She, all she had to do all day was to sit with yeah. her book and I should have been in getting her involved in something. And we were, we were not doing well in that first 10 years because we were investing so much time and effort into making each other happy in areas we didn't right. care about. Well, it's the very first thing we cover in our course. And the reason why we call it smart loving <laughs> right. is because it's a smarter way to love. Exactly. Is to love the other person the way they experience love, not by instinct, yes. which is the way we experience well, love. Well, a huge amount of effort mm. that of mine went into these areas and it was wasted because, yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like my wife. Appreciate the effort, but you're not really hitting the mark. My wife was saying it's like a massage. It's nice, but you don't need it every day. You don't care if you don't get it. You know, it's kind of just nice. Whereas, um, and I try to describe it to young blokes now when they ask me about this. I say, if there's a big button, a big green button, that if you press that little effort, and your wife's happy, wouldn't you just go, cool? I'll just press that constantly. Well, in my wife's case, the dishes is one of those buttons. Right. Now, it doesn't register on my, you know, it's a necessary chore or everything, but I don't get the same sort of pleasure if someone else does the dishes. So, okay, thanks. Yeah. But it's not a big deal for yeah. me, but for her, it's a big thing. So, yeah. if I if that's the button, doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to me, mm-hmm. I should be pressing that as hard as I can, as often yeah. as I can. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and, and that's smart. You've, you're using your energies in a positive way. And it's actually... It's actually genuine love because you're focused on her. Not me. Not yeah. on, well, just not, even just the mind, not even necessarily focusing on you, but that mindless kind of autopilot kind yep. of love that is um, not really attentive to the individual. Yep. So, I, you know, I absolutely agree. I've, I learned the hard way <laughs> with Byron. Um, I, when I've got a problem or I'm distressed, the way I react and want want to be loved is for someone to come around and listen to me, let me talk about it, let me work it out and we churn it over and just be present to me while I try to work out what to do. That's not the way he likes to be loved. He comes (laughs) home from work and I can see there's something going on. I'm like, oh, you look like something's worrying you. Would you like to talk? (laughs) And the answer is usually, I'm fine. But I'm, you know, I'm undaunted. I'll wheel around, you know, 10 minutes later. You really sure you don't want to talk about it? (laughs) Never worked. Have you seen Mark Gungor's... um Yes, video on the male brain, the funny. female brain, absolutely very brilliant. Yes, and, and again, my wife and I are slightly different in the way we communicate. But his idea of the boxes in males' brains—you oh. know, when you when you talk about something, you take out the box 
that's to do with your mother and when you put it there and you talk about what's in that box and then you put it back. <laughs> Whereas the, generally speaking, and it's only generally, but there's everything's connected yeah. for the women. Everything is connected, isn't it? It is. And it's it, what's interesting is that in some areas I'm like that and in other areas my wife's like that. So it's, it's not a perfect analogy. But having said that, it's fun to talk about these things I mean, if someone sees that, sometimes they get offended because they think they're being boxed into a stereotype. Yes. They're just thought starters. Yes. They're yes. just ways And we always differentiate between a generalisation and a stereotype. Yeah. A generalisation is, tr- is, is true because it is generally so. More often a, than not. A stereotype is when you've categorised someone because they belong to that group, they must behave like this. Yes. And yeah. I think we want to avoid the stereotypes. Sure. But we can certainly – and it's helpful to study the generalisations because it's kind of like getting a bit of a roadmap that's going to give us a direction on where to look yeah. or a treasure map so that we know where to dig hmm. um, to find actually the, the specific truth around that individual. Yeah, and sometimes stereotypes can be either – they can be bad in a couple of ways. One is that the – they make out as if you don't do this, you're not a real man mm-hmm. or a woman. Or the other end of the stereotype is that, look, this is another example of how crap men are. Right. Or how bad women are at this mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, none of these – these things are just ways of understanding each other. Yeah. And how to understand, how to communicate. And, and we would argue – I mean, there's, there's a bit of a trend in the culture that kind of goes along the lines of, well, look, he's like this, she's like that. Yeah, he's never going to want to talk that much. She's never going to want to have sex that often. Just get over it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of say, well, no, the differences between us um, are actually good for us because they call us out of ourselves to reach into the others' yeah. um, others' area. So it's part of God's plan, I think, to make us different so that we're stretched beyond our natural kind of boundaries yeah. a little bit and, um, and called into love. Young women often say to me, he won't talk. Um, yeah. And young men often say... Uh, she won't have sex. Mm-hmm. And almost always they're surprised when you say, look, if you put two human beings together, no matter how compatible they think they are, if their sex drives matched perfectly, that would be a miracle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's never going to happen that two people have exactly, and, and timing perfect and everything. Yeah. There's always going to be a, a, a legitimate adjustment. And one of the mistakes in some of the more, I think, s- silly ends of, marriage advice is someone has to give the other one whatever they want. That's just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. It's always a genuine respect for the other person is the starting point. And that part of that respect is wanting to make them happy and within the realms. But nothing I do to make someone else happy can ever undermine my dignity and my my free will as well. Mm -hmm. It can never be about me just giving up myself and my own free will and and something that makes me profoundly uncomfortable or something like that. It should never be about that. So can I um, articulate the way we talk about that on our weekend? And you can argue with me then. I hope so. So (laughs) we would would start by pointing out that um, women generally have a stronger need for intimate conversation. They connect and emotionally with their spouse, with their husband, primarily through intimate conversations. Not the only way, but that's a really strong factor. They need to feel heard. Yes, to feel heard. But they also want to hear about his interior life because yes. that's how she gets inside him. So it's an intimate communion, really. R- yes, yes, but expressed primarily through a verbal exchange. Right. For men, it's it's generally much more physical, not exclusively about sex, but a, sex is a big part of that. Sure. And that's how he literally gets inside her, but also that's how he will express his devotion, affection by doing things, by touch and so on. Mm-hmm. That's a much stronger feature for, for most men. When you've got those differences – it's automatically going to create what we call a desire discrepancy. Right. <laughs> she has a stronger desire. I have a stronger desire than Byron for intimate conversation. Right. Therefore, it creates a power imbalance. Right. He has power in that area of our relationship because he simply doesn't need it as much. He didn't create the situation. Yep. He, he's not on a power trip. It's just mm. the nature of if I need something more than he does, it puts me into a position of being less, pa- I guess, less under his power. Yep. And similarly, the other way around. Yep. The and often you of see love, that in in unhealthy situations in relationship where it becomes a trade off. Yeah. She he won't talk to me. She won't have sex. It's kind of like a power. If you play. talk to me, well, then I'll give you some sex. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's because you're not doing this for me. I won't do that. That which is really toxic and unhealthy. Mm. But I think the call of love is to recognise that it is a genuine need and desire of the other person. That's a godly desire, a man's desire to mm. be physically intimate with his spouse. And to, um, and it's not just, you know, t- 
to satisfy a sexual need, I think most men actually want that sense of deep communion, emotional communion that comes through lovemaking. Yes. So, and and her pleasure is really important to him as well, not yes. just his own pleasure. That's a holy need, and we need to honour that. Yes. And similarly, her desire to know him um, emotionally is a holy desire as well. Yes. So the call is that we put out to couples is um, having firstly addressed the wounds that we've inflicted on each other by exerting control over the other yep. and how damaging that can be to our psyche um, and, and kind of reconciling over that to then go forward with a new mentality of joyful availability. So it's not this coercive, it's not this resentful, okay, well, if I really have to, <laughs> um, but this sense of- And also no accounting involved. I gave you this many conversations, you can have that. Exactly. So, but just approaching a, this is the way that I can really show you how much I love you and yep. I'm really happy to do that for you. Sure. And, and to kind of work, I guess, on the interior disposition that doesn't see that as an imposition, yeah. but as a something I can joyfully embrace. Also looking at the variety, one of the things, I don't like Harley's work that we mentioned before, by the way, because it's so negative. Do this or you'll, you'll have an affair or something. Uh, but I do like that he's identified the variety of ways. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. most people recognise that men like sex. Most people recognise that women like that intimate communication. Mm -hmm. What was surprised me was the other part. So the yes. non-sexual physical touch uh, the women really enjoy. It's the affection. So when it's not associated with or, or a kind of a, always a lead into sex, she actually likes the, yes. the physical touch. Where, um, what was the other one? There was this. There's the recreational companionship. There's financial security. Financial security. There's, there's the domestic, um, domestic commitment. Yeah, domestic support. Um, Peace at home. One was a really big one for the guys. Admiration was a big one for the guys. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the. I think one of the most um, crucial areas in young men's lives and in yes. and in husbands, mm -hmm. um, what we're noticing is that because we identify so much of our our identity with work, the men almost desperately go to work looking for affirmation, whereas in the, in our theology and our understanding of marriage and even in human terms, it should be that their base identity comes from their relationships with friends with and especially their spouse. Absolutely. And that, that mm -hmm. if they receive affirmation in that field, they're much braver and, and less affected by the random person at work and what they think of them because mm -hmm. they're secure in themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And nobody's just an island in themselves. But if they're receiving that affirmation from their spouse, mate, I mean, there's a guy called Stenson who came and did a talk in Sydney and he said to every, he was he had a room full of about fifteen hundred people, and he made them all. He said, "Everyone, turn to your husband, and say out loud, I feel safer when you're at home.'" Now that was just the phrase he chose to use. Now we all knew it was coming. Yeah. And then he said, "And watch them." And the wives all turned around and said that to their husbands. And he said, "Their chest just got a little bigger." Yeah. And he said, "Because there's a genuine." Mm -hmm. And he says, "You all feel this, and you feel happier and safer when they're at home." This, this, you've never actually said it out loud. Yes. And that makes yeah, a huge difference does, to him wanting does. to be home and also realising how important it is and the security of, the, of his presence. Yes. And, and the affirmation has power. It does, it does. Far beyond yes, uh, what we realise. Yes. And we spent the first years of our marriage missing this cue, me, mm. me particularly. Um, Byron's work is very intense. It's very demanding, <laughs> long hours. We we um, got back from our honeymoon. He started a project in Brisbane. So every Monday morning for the first six months of married life, he was on a plane up to Brisbane oh, wow. for the rest of the week. Oh, dear. So we were in a, you know, a fly-in, fly-out <laughs> marriage from the first day. So, you know, it's it's been part of our life. And I've often been really negative and critical about the demands that his work right. makes on our time. And it's really detrimental because if I'm if he's getting criticised at home and at work they think he's a hero because he's you know bringing in the clients and yep. solving the problems, it's not much of incentive to hurry home to me. And it's also very it's almost in a subconscious preference then for think for where we're affirmed. That's right. Yeah, that's and, right. And even even when um, I mean this happens both ways. It's not really a particularly male thing, but it ha it can happen like. Uh, with a woman in her workplace as well yep. or at home or wherever she feels most appreciated and affirmed. And one of the deepest problems, at least I've noticed in Susie's life, is that when she's not appreciated verbally and demonstrably for the for the great stuff she does in the home and wherever else she is. So mm -hmm. it's often I've sometimes been grumpy that she's off helping another friend and taking a <laughs> dinner to somebody else who's in trouble. And, and I realise... 
they're super appreciative of her in that sense. Now, I'm not saying she shouldn't do those things. I love her for doing those things. Yeah. But she should get much more appreciation from from us yes. who, who receive so much more from and her. And how easy is it to just overlook the really mundane things? And you know, the, the fact that, um, you know, you made the bed every day. You know, the <laughs> yes. fact that you take the garbage out every week, the fact that you yep. – you know, all those really simple things that we overlook. And So perhaps this brings us back to what we said we were going to talk about at the start, which is how does an ordinary person get involved? And that mundane is probably the word I'd use. A couple yes. of, I was at a, a talk recently where I, I gave some advice on marriage and someone came up and said, how do I get my husband to do X? All right, okay, there's a problem there to start with, but mm. – I always say you're never going to motivate him by telling him off. Mm -hmm. You're never going to motivate him by saying what you want to happen. One of the because it's always just nagging. And then if you demand something and they give it to you, then it's not even a gift. It's sort of just a fulfilment of a demand. Yeah. You've robbed them of the opportunity to be generous. Yeah. However, if you take something that's good and take something that's positive and affirm them in that, mm -hmm. it changes the dynamic. Yeah. Now, my wife heard me say this in another thing. And then about three weeks later, she said to me, I really like how you hang up the towel for me every day. Uh, you're always neat about that. I hear some other guys aren't. That's really good. And I thought, what a weird <laughs> thing to be happy about. And then I thought, hang on. She's, She's been listening to it. <laughs> and, and I immediately now, I'm, without even realising, I'm looking for ways to be neat around the house and right. put all my stuff in the right places. Now, clearly she's, she's been very cunning and realised if I say this one thing that he did right, was it was almost the only thing I got in the right place. <laughs> so then it becomes, look, I want to receive that affirmation again. I want to. And yeah. so if we can seek out things that are positive and good. This is part of our smart loving framework <laughs> because one of the things that we teach couples, a really practical skill of applying it, is daily gratitude. Right. So what do I appreciate about you? And it, look, we do it with our children all the time, right? You don't necessarily put them down every time they make a mistake, you affirm them when they do the right thing. If, if you're on, on the ball, because not it's not a natural state of parenting no, to do that. No, but we kind of, we sort of know that that's a healthier way to interact, to, right. to, to highlight the positive and maybe just ignore or overlook the negative. Right. And, and in time that often takes care of itself. Well, we can educate each other about how I like to be loved yes. by affirming when he does it the right way. When you did that, that was awesome. Right, yes. Yeah. Really appreciated that. That mm. made a big difference to me. But let's say I'm talking to friends who are married. Uh, often, again, rather than calling them out, I mean, definitely some people need to be called out on, on unhealthy behaviour or gently nudged in the right mm. direction. But often, preemptive affirmation is actually, a, yes. you know, it's a much better thing. Like yes. say, hey, I love how you guys are like this or yes. I love how you did that or this is an opportunity to do that. Um, would you say that's like the positive affirmation actually is Yes, yeah, yeah. And as, lo as long as it's genuine, I think um, particularly Australians. We're, we're <laughs> we don't very, like disingenuous. We're very sceptical <laughs> about kind of the, I guess, the undeserved yeah, affirmation. Praise. So it's got to be grounded in reality. So obviously it has to be true. and and But I think we don't do enough of actually um, naming and calling it out. We often assume the person already knows it. Or if we said it once, that's enough. Yeah. We don't have to keep saying it. And, and that is, I think, having spent a bit of time, we lived in America for a year, year and a half, um, the cultural differences between the two countries are quite interesting to observe. You know, right. in America, there is this generalised optimism and, and I think <laughs> it actually comes back to partly their Thanksgiving traditions right. where there's this built into the culture is this idea of that we we give thanks for the good things in our life. Right. Whereas in Australia with its, its penal history, right. that perhaps it's, a, it's that's not quite present as effectively there. Yeah, our celebrations tend to be more about revolutions and, and complaints. Yes, and things yes, like, yes. You know. And that kind of spills over into our sort of daily psyche and our daily life. Right. And um, so I think that this, just this conscious habit of, of just cultivating, and we know that even from the positive psychology, this idea of gratitude, it's right. like a wonder drug. Like it's Can I throw an example at you? So mm -hmm. if I see someone in church, I remember how much we struggled as a young couple in church when our kids were just mm -hmm. endlessly playing up. Yeah. Oh, my children were all perfect in church. Just, just putting that out there. <laughs> Not. <laughs> my, yes. Well, mine are now because there's a sort of a culture in our family where the older kids have kept the younger kids in the habits. And it's interesting, once you've got the older ones in a certain habit, the younger ones will follow. Yeah. But we went through stages where it was nightmarish. We tried every bribe we could yeah. possibly think of and, and different punishments and different ideas. And we were spending, I reckon, in 
in almost all the masses in the first about five years of our kids' lives, we were in and out of the mass every yeah. time and never, I always missed the important things. But when I see a young couple struggling now, or even just a young mum sitting there with the kids, I make a point of going up to them afterwards after they've had a particularly horrible mass and yeah. saying, you're doing a great job. Yeah. This is really hard. I remember this stage. Stay with it, you know. Yeah. And and the difference in it, because they look at you with disbelief because yeah. they've just had the worst experience they've yeah. ever had and they're seriously considering never coming back to yeah. mass again. Yeah. And just yeah. that affirmation, even in a supermarket, that simple mm-hmm. affirmation of somebody saying, hey, it's worth it. Yeah. Good on you. You're doing a great yeah. job. It fe- I know what feels like it not now, but good on you. Yeah. And that can make such a difference yeah. in people's lives. And even I've sometimes done that even when I've seen, say, a parent in a supermarket who's probably not handling the situation well, right? It's trying, the kid's doing a tantrum, they're crying on the floor and stamping their legs and the mother's, you know, trying to drag them away. (laughs) I'll often even affirm them in that, even though I don't think that the strategy is the right strategy. But I say, oh, you must be so wrung out. I know how hard it is. You're doing a great job. Yep. It's all worth it. I know, you know, you'll get through this and it's all worth it. (laughs) The child's going to be fine. (laughs) And that's often enough to help them Gentle down a little bit. Because the perception is that everyone's negative. Because the only thing you hear is this kind of negative connotation. And sometimes you hear it out loud. Mm -hmm. So positive is very important, but also the practical things. I remember um, the first time someone offered to babysit for us so that we could go on a date. Just changed the world. I mean, just the simplest thing, especially in that young family age. And the church talks a lot about the value of family and fruitfulness and children. Let's be proactive. Let's actually yes. get in there and say, can we help out? Can I come and do some washing for you? Can I? Yes. I mean, now sometimes that gets a little tricky and someone coming into your yeah. space, but being practical, uh, being yes. helpful, offering a meal. Um, yes. There was a period of time when we were really struggling and that was with uh, the youngest's health. People just showed up with meals and it, yeah. it felt humiliating to start with because we were so proud about our own yeah. coping mechanisms. We realized actually this is really helpful and yeah. it changed the, the dynamic. It was really important. Just practical helps. Yes, yeah, simple, simple things like that. And I, I guess, uh, being sensitive to the autonomy of the couple, like yes, not not trying to override them and tell them what to do. And so you know, like the mother-in-law who barges in and starts, <laughs> you know, I'll solve cl- your problems. Yeah, cleaning up and all that sort of stuff can feel yep. judgmental. So not that my mother-in-law does that. I don't no. want that to be implied. But um, I'm very conscious now with my daughter. And, and their new baby that when, you know, I'm over at their place, yep. it's just to be respectful of what, what's helpful for her. And because f- they're, they're struggling to keep on top of all the, the tasks, yeah. but actually what she really values is company. And she yep. says, can you just sit down and have a cup of tea with me, mum? And so I can have an adult conversation. <laughs> yes, that's right. She doesn't want me to do a load of washing. She right. doesn't want me to go and wash up the dishes or whatever. Yeah. And I'm, I've, I'm, I'm itching to get into that sort of stuff. She just wants to have a conversation. So yeah. just... I guess Fine, checking again, in with them, finding out what they actually want. And again, helpful. taking the time and, and effort to find out what's good for the other person. Yes. And, and giving them what they need. Yes. And it's often not what we want or we think they need. Yes, because often it's bothering me that there's dirty dishes in the sink. Right. But it doesn't bother her. Good. She's really comfortable with that. Or it's at least there's things that bother her more than that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's not high on her priority. Yeah. Um, and so it's really we've got to be prepared to step into their value system and not impose our own. Hmm. There's some ways in which we, I mean, values is always a problematic word for me because it it basically says whatever I value is good. It should be important, but we have as Catholics a very clear set of guidelines about the dignity of each human person. So even if their values say this is okay, sometimes we need to nudge it a little bit and go, well, hang on, are you dignified in this? Yes. Is your personhood affirmed here? Is your independence, is your free will in fit? Now, and so- uh, I'm not saying all people who use the word values for that, but there's there's actual objective reality yes. uh, about um, a human person which can't be compromised um, no matter what they think. However, dishes are not in that realm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dishes are not. I mean, they're not. They're not um, in the realm of you know undignified behaviour. We probably need to bring it down to um, practicalities now. Mm-hmm. One of the the things that I'd like to see more of is a kind of a a way in which local communities can journey more together in this realm. We need to find creative ways, and I don't think there's one model that's going to work in every parish. No. We need to find creative ways to be actually available to each other in community, which aren't in in position on the other person's privacy, but are are actually genuinely available to them with a non-judgmental way, which actually helps them do the good thing, which is um, form those communities. 
I've, I've, we're really excited about the opportunities that are presented to us through the digital technologies. Right. There are gazillions of fabulous programs out there. We don't need new courses and new ideas. <laughs> There's lots of them there. Some of them are produced very well. Yep. They're quite contemporary and so on. But it's how do how do we access them in a way that's convenient and works yep. in with our life, particularly when there's a whole lot of other uh, reasons why you want, might be wanting to do spend your precious free hour somewhere yep. else. So we're we're putting all of our things onto in a, to an online environment so right. that they can be accessed easily. And the thing that I think is going to make a big difference long term over that is that it used to be that in order to facilitate a course or to run a program, you needed somebody who was trained. Right. And that training can take significant time and and investment. Mm. With an online facilitated environment, you remove the need for that. So right. an ordinary couple. You know, a couple in a parish or a school community could get together with two or three other couples and say, right. let's just do this together. It's, it's like the talking head syndrome. You actually talk, to, you, have, you have the input yep. from outside and then you then are free to work it through in your own That's way. That's right. And you can they can then focus on doing the things that can't be replicated through an online environment, which is creating the space of hospitality. An you actual know, community. Community, yeah. praying together and so on. There's no substitute for that human contact, is there? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really is the foundation. And mm. if you look at the programs that are being really successful in that line, things like um, you know, Alpha, for example, mm. that part is still the foundation of what they do. It's getting together for over a meal. Yep. You know, it's why it works, actually. Put the video on. It really could be probably any number of different videos, mm. but then it's the conversation. So here's why I like the smart loving approach is that uh, you've mentioned Alpha. I don't like Alpha. I think right. its program is actually designed to create Anglicans. Um, <laughs> and it's very successful in that. Unfortunately, we were looking for Catholics. But having said that, is no doubt that the the method they use mm-hmm. is effective. Mm. And I'm very delighted to hear that that model is used in the smart loving yes. area because I don't think the method is a pro- – in fact, the method's very effective. Yes. And your content is excellent. So we're going to put the smart loving website in our links yep, and right. I'm going to – pump that up and say that's a really good thing. And I'm going to say thank you very much for being part of this conversation. I hope that we can eventually get Byron on the show with you and we can talk more because there's so much to talk about with marriage. Sure is. But thanks for coming to this conversation. Uh, unfortunately, we were out of time, so we need yeah. to wrap it up. If today's podcast has got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, let us know, especially on this topic. There's plenty of stories out there. If there's something else you'd like us to talk about along these lines or something we've missed, you think, then drop us a line at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au or on Facebook, Discord, Instagram, Twitter, any of the social media outlets that we're on. Remember that this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast, and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. Before we go, it's time for shout-outs. Um, Francine, do you have a shout-out? Oh, I think, look, I shout-out my absent husband. Again, <laughs> he's uh, praying for us at the moment, so... Good on him. ...from afar. Indeed. And I think I'll shout-out to my kids who've put up with our fumbling attempts at marriage and parenthood for a long time. Hopefully, uh, they'll recognise one day we were doing our best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life. 